Welcome to Indefinable Magic, pathologically arcane observations about something designed as disposable entertainment that we've all, frankly, got a bit too carried away with. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This week, neither flux nor wither nor change their state. You've had this place redecorated. I don't like it. Well, it's the flexible format in it. Yeah, that's often the stock answer we go to when trying to sum up why Doctor Who is such a great show. I mean, it can literally go anywhere and any when. It's a programme about a boundless variety of storytelling options that once spent a whole year spinning yarns about a series of bases coming under siege from a rotating roster of monsters. Oh, it's an adventure in space and time that once introduced a new Doctor by, um, banning him adventuring into space or travelling anywhere in time. Oh, it's a, it's a programme of infinite visual variety in which regular characters have been known sometimes to not change their wardrobe between stories and remain in exactly the same costume, sorry, clothes, for a whole year. But nothing excites Doctor Who fans as much as change. And by excites, I don't mean in a, oh, that's exciting way. I mean excites in a, that's not what I'm used to and I hate it and the person responsible for it is the devil incarnate sort of way. You know, that joyful, shared love we all revel in exhibiting in the measured and sensible exchange of ideas that take place on the internet these days. Um, and this isn't a new thing for internet substitute pages of a fanzine and my generation and a couple before can suddenly be a bit less smug about the state of modern discourse. For no casting, storytelling or artistic choice can escape being greeted with horror as the end of the show as we know it, whether it be a new doctor, too young, too old, too fat, too thin, too woman, the new theme arrangement, too funky, not funky enough, not the right mix of funkiness and not funkiness, or the new Dalek design. Remember the new paradigm Swiss Army Daleks? I've known friendships end over those M&M coloured Swiss Army knife tanks. But the show has been changing since day one. Whatever happened to that programme set in present-day foggy London? I loved that. I mean, it's easy to forget that Tom Baker's season 18 Burgundy Ensemble was the first time he'd really had a regular costume as such. Yeah, sure, his silhouette remained pretty much the same in his previous seasons, but its constituent parts always changed here and there. But this new outfit in his final season was actually part of a stylistic overhaul for the show, which, along with its more uniform approach to costuming, brought with it an altered theme and a different title sequence the first major changes of my youthful watching of Doctor Who as it went out. I remember when I first saw the new Starfield opening and the neon logo. My reaction was one of a typical fan who loves and celebrates Doctor Who's flexible format so much and cites it as evidence of the whole series' absolute brilliance. I hated them. New producer John Nathan Turner famously wanted to bring the show into the 80s 
and to him this spangly new design, plus the accompanying electronic rendition of the theme, all synth and whirls, was a bold statement. To me, it wasn't what I was used to. I complained to my sister. She said that her schoolmate, Peggy Redacted, had written to the BBC, and they had told her that the old titles and theme were too expensive. Hmm, I'm not sure I believed that. I mean, Peggy Redacted's credentials were unimpeachable. She was ten, whilst my sister was nine, and I was five, so, you know, she knew what she was talking about. But even then, I spied a hole in her story. They've already used the old ones, so how could they be too expensive? They've already been paid for. I didn't know much about the world at five, but I had an instinct about how TV worked. I didn't doubt for a second, then, that Peggy Redacted had written to the BBC. The Redacteds were a sensible and interesting family. But I assumed the corporation had fobbed her off with a lie. Now, though, I might have cause to doubt the veracity of my primary source, and so apologise retroactively to Auntie Beeb. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but I no longer trust MSM, at my sister's mates. Wake up! But, you know, I got used to it, that title sequence. Until, of course, a new doctor came along. It was one thing having craggy-faced Baker with his tousled curls, a dramatic image, appear in those stars. But this new man? Peter Davison's face was young and pleasant and open, and so flat and unlined. So there was not much for the stars to cling to, like the iridescent space limpets that they are, when forming the Doctor's visage. And the reveal of Davison's face... It was like a Venetian blind. They have those in offices. I don't want my doctor's face revealed like the view from the photocopy room's window. And I hated the neon logo. Oh, God. I didn't hate a logo so much until... Well, until the next one. Nothing teaches you to like something better than not being allowed to see it anymore. Of course, now this sequence, that theme, they evoke childhood nostalgia. The thrill of a new story... The sounds and smells and atmosphere of a crumpet and crumbs and an open fire, all of which usually accompanied my viewing during this period. Instead of being new and scary, now they are old and comforting. The painful new shoes become the snug, warm slippers. That neon glow now exudes warmth and cosiness, where once it yelled late-night space bar. But anyway, what this whole business told me was that this stylistic piece of redecorating was somebody's decision. There was someone to blame. Or oh, there's nothing like having some faceless bureaucrat to rail against. And this is, I think, where some of the anger comes from. It's an affrontery that someone might come in to our show and dare to put their mark on it. Actually, that's wrong, because I've never felt Doctor Who was my show. I've not been arrogant enough to take ownership of it. I'm a fan. I am subservient to it. But I'm from a time when you looked back with reverence, he said, looking back to the time when he looked back with reverence, with a certain degree of reverence. Ha ha. And so I considered those creatives whose names were etched on book spines and old credits, I considered them with some degree of adulation. Newer names, though. Oh, they were worrying interlopers who, if they weren't careful, would desecrate the foundations laid by their hallowed predecessors. Old was good, new 
were suspect. Today's discourse often seems to be the reverse of this, and both positions are, of course, utterly mad. But the point is, I shouldn't think anyone has got a job on a long-running TV programme by saying, yeah, I'll largely do what my predecessor did, and if they did, I'm not sure they'd last long. Well, not on a show that has a flexible format and thrives on change anyway. Mastermind, university challenge, yeah, they need certain things to remain the same. Any producer that came in saying, yeah, let's ditch the leather chair, or do the teams need to go on top of each other, would, I hope, be given short shrift. And the day that they aren't is probably the day I finally cave in and decide the world is no longer for me. And as somebody that has just realised to his horror that he's probably now got a bit old for Radio 2, that day's approach seems ever quicker. But as the producer responsible for the Starscape and Neon logo, John Nathan Turner, himself once said in an interview, it's the theme and the police box. Everything else is fair game. And that's hard, because it means that the same show can be almost entirely different. Our own molecules have been shed and metamorphosed and warped over the years, so that it's unlikely there's one scintilla of us that was part of us when we were born, and yet we're still the same person. But is the massacre really part of the same series as the greatest show in the galaxy? Or even closer together, are the space pirates and spearhead from space, same writer, really, on an identical family tree? It's hard to be loyal then, to be not disappointed by a show whose very DNA is in a constant state of <clears throat> flux. Does it really have any right to expect someone who was captivated by the action-adventure of Earthshock to be rocked by the elegant history lessons of Marco Polo, or indeed vice versa? If you swipe right on the Seeds of Doom, are you not entitled to feel a bit aggrieved if Underworld turns up at the bar? Yeah, that was an old picture, doesn't quite cut it. And how many of us have gone to bed with the Caves of Androzani and woken up with the Twin Dilemma? Well, um, all of us, actually. As I'm not without sin, let me chuck a few stones in my own direction first. Here's one, and it's a biggie, and I've mentioned this before. Boy, I hated Peter Davison when I was seven. He wasn't Tom Baker, my doctor, the only doctor I had ever known. I had seen other doctors, but only in the five faces of Doctor Who repeat season. But I loved them. They were from the olden days, and of course anything from the past was good. The past is another country, but it's a safer one, more comfortable, and there's something beguilingly mysterious about it. We know how the past ends, so it doesn't hold the same amount of fear as the present. The past, like a siren, lures us to our certain doom. You'll be all right here, it purrs, not like the present, with its surprises and uncertainties. That's why opportunistic politicians and political commentators invoke it, to either foment dissatisfaction or to protect the old guard. Like Doctor Who, life is never as good as it used to be, and it's probably the fault of those new, unfamiliar people, be they young or foreign or different from what I'm used to. Agents of change. Now, obviously, this isn't universal. If everything were to stay the same, then we would atrophy, 
Society, life, everything needs refreshing in order to survive. But refreshment involves a shock to the system. A sharp intake of citrus, a quick immersion into an icy pool. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But um, that does mean it might kill you. And you always feel better after the icy plunge, but you approach it with absolute dread. You know it's good for you, but you're still not going to like it. Far safer not to jump in at all, if possible. Thank you very much. And we like what we know. That's why we like it. What we know makes us feel comfortable. So when it changes and it becomes what we don't know, well, we don't like it. It kicks away our stabilisers. I mean, as a kid, I was excited about Tom Baker's forthcoming regeneration because such things had only happened before I was born. Well, I was less than one year old when he made his debut. And now I was going to witness one. How exciting! And imagine what sort of adventure the longest-running Doctor will have to see him off, I thought, poring over my target books with pictures of Cybermen on the moon and soldiers battling giant dinosaurs. Surely all the monsters will return and there'll be action and explosions and lots of scary aliens when this Doctor of all Doctors is seen off. An epic battle to end all battles. Oh, he fights maths in a lay-by. OK. Now, I love Logopolis now, by the way, with its funerary atmosphere, moody direction and Tom Baker's ominous performance. And because it's in the past and reminds me of my childhood, with its insulation from tax and politics and being the one responsible for, well, bloody everything. Then, though, Logopolis seemed to me to consist of a cackling man stealing abacuses off old men with pink hair and following the doctor around a dusty maze as he walked around being grumpy. Where were the monsters and explosions of yore? But still, I loved Tom Baker. He was funny and scary and dramatic and not like anyone else in the universe. He made me terrified and safe and he lit up my screen and my life every Saturday tea time. He was a boggle-eyed Pied Piper who led me away from a real world that scared and worried me into a universe where the scares and worries were thrilling and fun and, and this is key, were always defeated by a benevolent magician. And so when he left and a younger man appeared, well, I hated it. I hated the cricket thing and I played cricket. I had cricket gear. But the fact is, this didn't turn into comfort and cosplay. You'd think that, as at last the Doctor looked a bit like me, he was closer to my age and identified with a sport I sort of liked, would make him an identification figure. But you see, I didn't want the Doctor to reflect me. I hated me. I wanted the Doctor to show what I could be if I was brave and funny and clever and lived an exciting life. Just the same as it wasn't Luke Skywalker who I gave a monkeys about in Star Wars. The young hero going on a journey well, didn't hold much interest for me. I liked the guy who'd completed it. The confident, tough guy with the funny lines, the attitude and the cheeky dog thing friend with a laser gun. He wasn't like me at all, but I sure as hell wanted to be like him. So if anything, the new Doctor's familiarity stoked my loathing. The fact that he was a bit more like me than his predecessor turned me off him, which is probably something for the psychiatrist's chair. Well, so hang on though. Maybe I was wrong earlier. Maybe the familiar isn't always comfortable. I don't know. He was too young, that was for sure. The doctor was young. 
Nowadays, series aimed at kids seem to want young characters in order that the youthful audience might identify with them. I didn't want to see people like me, though, when I was young. I didn't identify with anyone anyway. I wanted someone distant and magical who could sweep me up and take me away from it all. In that far-off world of long ago called the 1980s, the wise people were the older ones. They'd lived life, accrued knowledge. Now that I'm one of the older ones, myself, uh, the pervasive idea seems to be that uh, that has gone out of fashion and that old people are behind the times and not as relevant and well-informed as the happening youth. Great. Timing was never my forte. Uh, but of course, we will all have similar stories based on what was normal and what was changing when we were younger, depending on when we're from. Patrick Troughton, venerable doctor of yore to me, was a programme-altering interloper to anyone who watched the show from the beginning. Why turn a wonderful series into what looked like Coco the Clown, etc, etc. I mean, there are some fans today who were teething when Christopher Eccleston was in the TARDIS. And they can vote now. Yikes. But me? Well, now I am old and wise, of course. I take things in my stride. <laughs> of course I don't. I hate everything new. I was listening to a young person on the radio today. I say young. I think she's about 30. And she irritated the hell out of me. She's politically on my side of the fence. She's clearly intelligent and well-informed. And she was disagreeing with the kind of people I disagree with. And yet, I found her insufferable. And I tried to work out why. And I realised it was because of her speech patterns and occasional phraseology. Like, basically. She talked literally like a young person. She had the same speech patterns as my kids, 22 and 18, by the way, with curious sloped vowels and skewed consonants, OK, Dad, that seemed to have been added to the lexicon for no good reason, apart from the erection of my spinal hairs, previously only tumescent at the sound of fingernails on a blackboard. And I'm not talking about accents here. I understand that being northern is allowed now. Lots of planets have one, and the world didn't end. But it's this weird metamorphosing of pronunciation that gets me. And don't get me started on the misappropriation of words, which makes me sick in the actual meaning of that word. And look, I love my kids, but I don't want them telling me things. How can someone who doesn't seem to be able to pick clothes up off the bedroom floor or make a cup of coffee lecture me about politics? And also, what does it mean for me if someone I witnessed being a mewling and puking infant is suddenly better versed in the ways of the world than I am. Nothing good, I suspect. Nothing good. Well, apart from the need for a map to navigate me to the knacker's yard from my current location, which is somewhere just over the hill. But of course... Age was just one of the issues that loomed when the casting of, at the time of recording, new Dr Shuti Gatwa was announced. But as it happens, it was one occasion when I can genuinely say the change didn't bother me. I mean, I've already had a doctor younger than me when Matt Smith came along, and so now it's just one of the many things pointing to the exit door out of Relevanceville. But first of all, I think one of the reasons I wasn't bothered was that I didn't actually know him or his work, and that's definitely a change. I used to be across actors pretty well, I thought, but today's fractured cultural landscape means that a star to a huge demographic can be unknown to an even huger one. 
So one of the joys of this new development is that the national grid will now be powered by the crimson heat generated by the blushes spreading across the faces of several million middle-aged men, suggesting to their families and friends that perhaps this week should be spent on a binge-watching of that sex education programme. And of course, Doctor Who embraces change. It has to, in order to reflect the times, to be relevant. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be reactive to the times. It doesn't need to go along with current trends, so long as it is aware of them. The programme was definitely failing by the end of season six, despite the fact that Patrick Troughton is one of the most popular doctors, and the War Games is now generally seen as a classic. But the ratings weren't fantastic, and the show genuinely wasn't on everyone's lips, as it once had been. Its return with a new doctor largely known as a comedy actor, by the way, a comedian playing the lead in Doctor Who, why I Yoda, in colour and on film. The difference between episode 10 of The War Games and episode 1 of Spearhead from Space is huge. But this was the producers thrusting the show into the present day, using new technology and reinvigorating the whole series. But fans, at the time, could quite justifiably have said, and probably did, hang on, You've decided to improve this programme about a benevolent alien who travels in time and space by exiling him to the present day, sticking him in a very human setup and taking away his ability to travel in space and time. There's change and there's rewriting the entire DNA of the show. And yet, history tells us that the Pertwee era is popular and exciting and managed to create some of the series' best-loved characters and stories. And never mind that... Just before Pertwee hit town, the mysterious doctor about whom we knew nothing suddenly had a very detailed backstory that was info-dumped upon us as Troughton took his final curtain. Doctor We Kinda Know Who now doesn't exactly have the same ring to it. With the benefit of time, though, both of these episodes, War Games 10 and Spearhead 1, are absolutely bloody marvellous and for totally different reasons. And isn't it wonderful that they both exist in the universe of our fantastic, flexibly formatted show. At the same time, though, watching from one to the other must have been the televisual equivalent of the bends. Now, again, I can't really comment because this stuff was set in stone before I was born. But it was new once. It was a change. And what seismic changes they must have been. Stuff that, for me, was part of the show's rich and developing history was, a generation or two above, some young whippersnapper coming along and messing with the programme. Or was it? Or were the fans of yore made of different stuff, where instead of taking ownership of the show and expecting the producer to do what the fans wanted, they greeted each new development with a sense of awe and new possibilities? Even as I say that out loud, it seems much more preferable to the rather prescriptive approach many of us seem to have to a programme of infinite possibilities we'd like to limit with our own expectations. I'm from a time when The Deadly Assassin was one of the show's lauded classics, so it was with shock that I learned that some corners of fandom had greeted it with horror when it first came out. Now then, satirising the grandiose self-image of the Time Lords by turning them into duplicitous manoeuvring politicos with an understanding of public image and a penchant for manipulating the news undoubtedly makes them more interesting. But if you turn your gods into media monsters, then those viewers 
who had seen the Doctor's own people as omnipotent super-beings, and how exciting was it when they revealed so to be, were justifiably irate upon seeing them turned into grubby politicians with more in common with the House of Lords than the House of Our Lord. I'm currently at a crossroads in life. I'm approaching 50, and I try not to rail against change too much, partially because I know it's fruitless, and partially because the optimist in me accepts that change comes about because the next generation want to overturn some of the things that mine have got wrong, and that I don't dislike new things because they are bad, but because they are not what I am used to. But is change always progress? That's the one to wrestle with. I'd argue that John Nathan Turner's decision to bring Doctor Who into the 80s automatically dated what he was trying to do in a way that some earlier alterations to the show did not. I think there's a more timeless quality to the pre-Starscape Bernard Lodge titles and graphics compared to anything we saw in the 1980s. In fact, the McCoy logo is so 1980s, with teenage cool school exercise book zany orange scrawl of Doctor and its shiny chrome who, that it couldn't be more 80s if it had a mullet, ripped jeans and sweatbands and was held in place by industrial amounts of hairspray. It's no accident that programme revivals have given us both the Pertwee logo and the Diamond logo, and, even as I record this, Bonnie Langford. Yes, Mel is making a welcome return. And isn't that a change? And a positive one too. And I say that as someone who was livid with her casting when I was angry and young and stupid, and now regard her as a national treasure. An important message to all the very certain young people out there. Some of your fervently held views will embarrass you in 20 years' time. I promise you. It seems perfectly right and fun and joyous that Bonnie Langford is back but I doubt it'll ever enter anyone's head to resurrect the chrome and orange cartoon logo that she strutted her stuff under. And of course, some things that were new and blasphemous then seem, well, pretty run-of-the-mill now. The kissing between the Doctor and Grace in the TV movie was the Hooniverse equivalent of an all-nude gangbang, but now it seems rather tame, and we know that it didn't make the show descend into a romance-of-the-week kind of programme. Yes, there have been emotionally close, unspoken, maybe even unrequited bonds between the Doctor and Rose and the Doctor and Yaz, as well as typically Moffat-esque romantic conundrum-type stuff between the Doctor and River Song. But our main character is hardly Commander Riker or Sam Beckett, snogging their way through sci-fi adventures like a touchy-feely, in the right kind of way, intergalactic James Bond. But if you described any of those character dynamics to me before I saw them, then I would have doubtless been infuriated by the prospect of bringing soppy love stuff into the breathtaking adventure series I enjoyed, and enjoyed so much partly because it was unencumbered by all that emotional stuff that you can find in other programmes and I don't particularly like. But then, when it's done well, and boy was the Doctor and Rose stuff done well, I was weeping on Bad Wolf Bay along with the rest of the country. As for the aesthetics, well, I wasn't wild about the taxicab logo that heralded the new series either, but I didn't despise it like I did the McCoy logo. Maybe because everything was so new and exciting and hopeful, something like the logo suddenly didn't seem that important. Murray Gold's theme I liked because of what was old and because of what was new. 
I loved the familiarity of the sampled ooey-oos from the themes I knew and loved, but was thrilled by the urgent racing Dudley Dums, augmented by dashing, classy violins, adding an extra layer to the backbone I found so nostalgic and comforting. So it was the different and yet the familiar, and that's perhaps why it worked for me. That change is all well and good, but it needs to be added slowly, so that it doesn't make our brains explode. If it all happens too quickly, the oxygen bubbles in the blood and pop. And it's never a good look, is it? Being resistant to change. History usually proves the resistors wrong. Whether you like Jodie Whittaker as a doctor or not, it would be a bold claim to say that what you don't like about her is that she's a woman, wouldn't it? I never particularly wanted a female doctor, largely because it wasn't what I was used to, I think. But as soon as she walked through the forest during Wimbledon and revealed herself to be that terrific actress from Attack the Block, one of the most refreshing sci-fi movies of recent years, I found myself pretty relaxed about the situation. More relaxed than I ever was if the prospect of a female doctor was raised in, say, a pub conversation. Because, of course, when something is a possibility, that's when it's daunting. When it happens, well, you just have to kind of get on with it. It wasn't such a seismic change that it was going to make me stop watching the series. In fact, I've yet to find a change that has made me stop watching the series. So any uncertainty I may have had now turned to intrigue. And now that a female doctor is a possibility, next time there is one, it won't seem such a big deal. And the actress in question will, I'm sure, just be able to get on with the job. And people can get on with hating her logo or her theme or the fact that episodes are now transmitted on thought waves instead of good old-fashioned television. Or whatever. Because the point is, like the marshmen in full circle, we adapt pretty quickly and soon get used to our new environment. It's only our own nervousness that stops us from moving forward. I remember when I first had an answering machine. It seemed like such an amazing piece of technology. It was the future, man. If I'm out, people can leave a message. Amazing! I'm someone used to phoning people who, if they didn't answer once, you had to phone again later and again later, and if they didn't answer three times and they were your girlfriend, you assumed that they hated you and were deliberately not picking up in a secret code that they wanted to dump you, and oh god, it's so frustrating because why isn't she answering, and and and, and if she isn't, what about her parents, why aren't they answering, but maybe they know it's me, and even though it's the olden days and you can't actually see who's calling, they probably hate me too and know it's me calling, and, and, and so, oh, actually they've just been to the shops. So, yeah, answer machine, this is great. A wonderful change. This will make life so much easier. Even though I'd never missed a call that, if I'd received it, would have changed my life. When the answering machine broke about three months later, suddenly I was terrified. What if somebody calls and I'm not in? It's the end of the world! We get comfortable with new things pretty quickly, without realising it. I have an instinct that Doctor Who somehow feels safer in the past. No episode from ten years ago is going to affect the show's survival now. The Happiness Patrol, which to me when it was broadcast was a gaudy, stupid and camp aberration, is now a smart, daring and, yeah, camp, sure, flawed but hugely enjoyable tale that's about something and bold in its attempts to, well, flex the format. But that's because the show is safe now. Or at least it's safe from anything that Sylvester McCoy and Andrew Cartmel and, yes, John Nathan Turner are doing. 
It's the newer things and people that worry us now. What if the timeless child stuff is referenced by Russell T Davis? For some, that would be awful. What, on the other hand, if the timeless child stuff isn't referenced by Russell T Davis? For some, that would be awful. In the end, though, whether he does or he doesn't, it'll be the stories we remember, the characters, the moments, and, dare I say it, the logos and the music and the look and the feel, and the people we were with, and the times we were at, and the places that we were when we watched that magical show that hooked us. I like that. I don't like that. But we will remember where we were when we first saw that lettering that we liked or hated, when we heard that refrain that sang or jarred, when we watched that new doctor who attracted or repelled us. But if we're fans, we will watch again down the line when those elements, so new, so shocking, so dissonant, well, they'll be part of history. They won't be new anymore. But we will remember where we were when we first watched them, in a happy home where they were a shared joy, or in an unhappy one where they were a respite from the gloom. And we will remember all the things from them that made us happy or sad, and we'll be grateful for the happiness and relieved that the sadness has passed, because change is actually important. The waves of time will wash us all clean. And if, like me, you're getting older and are wary sometimes, worried, often appalled by the changing world around you, remember this. My granddad was a decent liberal man who liked cauliflower and he liked cheese, but he thought putting them together was a kind of blasphemous wizardry. He was a man of habit. He didn't do change. Weetabix for breakfast six days a week, boiled eggs and soldiers on a Sunday, of course. Until one morning, aged about 74, he surveyed the two Weetabix before him and said, I'm bored of them, and instead had a bowl of shreddies, which he then had every day for the rest of his life, until he died. Apart from Sundays, boiled eggs and soldiers, natch. He wasn't an anarchist. Even those of us who are really set in our ways can enjoy something new when we regard it for what it is, not for what it isn't. And if we don't, well, that's fine too. There's a reason the world gets less recognisable to us as we get older. It's because we won't have to live in it as long as the people coming next. My granddad, a progressive fellow by his generation standards, was, like all of us, a product of his time. He thought the Beatles, with their long hair, were absolutely beyond the pale and probably the end of civilization as we know it. But call him a bigot and I'll have you cancelled. And, and really, actually, does it matter if old people don't like new things? Old dogs, new tricks. Old people are supposed to not like new things. To my two kids, I'm the old guy. I've just realised, to my abject horror, that they are closer in age to the new Doctor Who than I am. OMG, as, no doubt, all three of them would say. The things that baffle, even worry, this old guy, not that old, about much of the modern world, while the kids, from what I've learned from talking to them, when I can get past the vowels and the certainty. They've got it pretty much covered. They'll be living in this world longer than me. 
So it's quite right that they're starting to shape it. It's right and it's fair, and it'll make it better and safer and easier for them. And I'm sure as life goes on, the less I'll recognise and the less I'll understand. And that's a good thing. It's all part of the natural order, because as we get older, we naturally fit less comfortably into the world. We understand less of the world and we recognise less of the world. And that's important because as our surroundings and expressions and references and styles and attitudes and God damn it, vowels, metamorphose, change and regenerate into something that resembles the ones we know and yet it's all somehow different in so many ways too. So different that it's disconcerting and maybe frightening and appalling and possibly dangerous. All this means that we really don't feel like we fit into it anymore and then that is good because it'll be less sad when we die. <laughs> Change. And <laughs> on a moment too soon. That's my kind of optimism. It'll be less sad when I die. In fact, I'm more worried about Doctor Who carrying on after I die and me missing future classic episodes than I am of it ever changing so much that I'll stop watching it and loving it. But, you know, loving it with loads of reservations about its most recent incarnation. Because the world I knew has changed. And it's changed so that different people can live in it. That's why we call people who cling to the past dinosaurs. They died out. It was inevitable and necessary. Am I a dinosaur? Maybe. And if I am, I'm like a Doctor Who dinosaur. Not terribly impressive looking, slightly wobbly, with an unconvincing roar, and, in retrospect, regretted by almost everyone involved. It's a pejorative term, dinosaur, but perhaps it shouldn't be. The world has changed and they no longer fitted into it. But at the time, wow, they were magnificent. So if there's something that happens in the next few weeks, few years or few episodes of Doctor Who that you don't like, don't worry. Just wait until they're old. Suddenly they'll seem safe, even fondly nostalgic. You might just change the way you think about them. And the ones that don't change in Doctor Who, the ones that resist change, the ones that fear the unknown, the Daleks. They're the baddies. And talking of the Daleks, I mean, you know, I accept change, but the Matt Smith ones with the fat backs? Nah, they'll always be awful. <laughs> actually, no. Now they're just part of the show's history, and I'm actually rather fond of them. They remind me of a time when the show was involving, changing, and learning from its mistakes. I look at them in the same way that 25th century humans might well regard men's nipples. As a quaint relic of the past, slightly baffling, but in the long run, pretty harmless. And the show itself, I think, addressed this paradoxical celebration of change and yet our fear of it occurring in that wonderful line given to the headmaster in School Reunion, a show about celebrating the past but moving onwards. Nothing that happens tomorrow can change yesterday, after all. We keep all our yesterdays, even unto dusty death. But that wonderful line, You act like such a radical, says the headmaster, yet all you want to do is preserve the old order. That touches a nerve. See, I like to pretend I enjoy new experiences, that I'm curious, 
but I invariably order sticky toffee pudding for dessert, even though that new thing sounds interesting. I know where I am with sticky toffee pudding. I consider myself open to new experiences, and yet, deep down, I think they frighten me. And what's Doctor Who for, if not making things that are frightening less so? The whole point of the show is that the central character lands in a new place and is curious to find out about it. Although, to be fair, the new place is usually a houser of deadly situations and awful monsters that want to kill you, so, you know, maybe actually stay at home with the sticky toffee pudding. Much safer than a sticky situation with the candy man. So, you know what? Yeah, I think we're supposed to fear change. It's a natural process. I'm excited about Doctor Who right now. I really am. And that's the other thing about change. What will it be like? It is like Doctor Who. Exciting because it's scary. There's an element of, oh, I might hate this, that makes approaching each new era like a roller coaster ride that might ruin the continuity you love about all the preceding roller coaster rides you've been on. And despite my attempts in this podcast at circumspection and balance, I'm as bad as the worst fan out there. Say, for example, coming up, I love Shooty Gatwa. I already think I will. The new TARDIS console, the new theme, and his first episode. I know that when that closing theme plays and my mate Johnny sends me a text going, I loved that, I loved him, she was amazing, that line was an instant classic, ooh, those monsters, I won't be able to resist. I'm sure I'll go, yes, oh, I love this, adored that, thought they were amazing, but, oh, what have they done with the logo slash theme slash shoes? Because, oh, in a universe of flux, Doctor Who fans, we're the one thing that never changes. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic. This week's episode, Neither Flux Nor Wither Nor Change Their State, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydock and at Haydock Podcasts. And the music for Indefinable Magic is by Dominic Glynn. These podcasts would be full of adverts and much worse. I mean, could you imagine were it not for the kindness of the people who subscribe to my Patreon? And they include Tom White, Stephen White, Sidney Wilson, Andrew Wilson, Andrew Willis, Reese Williams, Michael Williams, Rich Wiggins, Adam Westwood, Gary Wales, Apollo C. Vermouth, Sabrina Tirabassi, Damien Timmer, Nick Temple, Neil Tate, Stephen, you're all small case and no surname, Stephen, Tim Smith, David Shepherdson, Graham Slate, Keith Say, Jim Sankster, Mark Sandham, John Rivers, Dylan Reese, Scott Pride, Kevin Parker, Jonathan Potter, Melvin Pena, Dave Owen, Graham Knott, Matthew Newton, Christopher Newman, Ian Morgan, Nathan Moore, Stuart Mitchell, Russell McPhillips, Jason Mayo, David Matthewman, Steve Manfred, Gavin McLean, Lisa and Andrew, James Lark, Guy Lambert, Clive Lewis, Ashley Knight, Andy Kitching, Jess Jerkovic, 
Christopher Joyce, Andrew Jordan, Robert Jewell, Richie Howarth, Dave Hoskin, Legion Henderson, Paul Gregory, Fraser Gregory, David Green, Lisa C. Greco, James Gould, Paul Goodridge, Gary Gillett, Joe Ford and Paul Greaves. Thanks to you all. Would you like your name read out like that? Well, that's one of the benefits of going to, and I think this is the third time I've mentioned it now, I'm so terribly sorry, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. It's the way we subsidise the arts and creativity these days, and also chances with a glib tongue and too much time spent talking about Doctor Who. That's the category I fall into, and my Patreon starts at £3 per month. I mean, you can go up as high as you like, but £3 a month is hugely appreciated, and you get everything there. I mean, there's, there's not really anything much to lure you up the tears there's little bits and bobs to lure you up the tears but but all the content is available at three pounds per month and you can get 10 percent off that and indeed off any tier if you sign up for a year in one go the annual commitment uh now look i know that the uh, monthly subscription thing is not for everybody uh, you do though by the way with that get uh, exclusive releases uh, podcasts that are just for you, AMAs that are just for you, uh, photos of my dog, but you also get happy times and places about six months ahead and uh, these indefinable magics maybe a month, six weeks or so ahead. Ditto uh, too much information. I will speed up the release of those uh, once I've finished my Quatermass book. Um, y- yeah, l- l- should we not talk about that? <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, yes, there's, there's plenty, there's, you get plenty of it. You get three releases per week and that doesn't include pictures of my dog. That's a bonus release. And somebody's just asked for a picture of my cheese plant, which I think may be taking things a bit too far. He's looking very sorry for himself. And I've got a very wilted pineapple as well. It's the smallest, most Liputian pineapple in the history of the, you don't need to know about my house plants. I think you probably get enough of me. <laughs> I don't think you need any more. I don't think you've asked for any more, but I've just given it. That's what this is. This is what you're paying for. I mean, I'm doing this anyway um but if you feel you want to fund this uh abhorrence yes that's patreon i've i've said that loads of times now uh the monthly thing is not for everybody as i said i, I think you know, a segue or three ago uh, but you can do a one-off payment at ko-fi.com forward slash toby Haydock, where basically if you'd like a particular podcast or you're feeling particularly flush uh you can just it's the equivalent of buying me a coffee really and uh starving artists uh, we live off free coffees so they're all appreciated too i'm huge Hugely grateful, though, to anybody that just listens to this stuff. It's it's really humbling and flattering to know that it's actually worth spending time doing this because there are enough of you out there that that sort of justify me doing it. So thanks for listening. I do appreciate it because it's been a couple of years now, and you know, I, I think I haven't compared it to anything, but I think I get I, I get a decent I get enough to just enough. There seems to be enough numbers in the column to justify the time I spend, and that's that's heartening because that's what I want to do. I want to write stuff and say stuff and create stuff and talk, hopefully, interestingly about Doctor Who and other things. So thanks for allowing me to do that. So you know, that's that's actually worth more than the money, really. So just if you're just listening thanks uh there's nothing just about that actually you know just i'm i'm i'm, I'm grateful uh, what you can do to help though if you if you'd like to um and you can't uh, do the go the financial route and oh, boy i understand that uh you know the cost of living has gone crazy uh, frankly the world's going to hell in a handcart yes i've become that age uh 
and and you know I'm, I'm happy to provide some distraction for your commute to work to work or your jog or whatever it is that you're doing uh you know decorating the house i'm selling your firstborn i mean that's that seems to be what a lot of us can have to do these days sorry to my eldest he's 22 i don't think i'll get much for him but needs must anyway uh he's not available on the patreon feed um, but uh what am i talking about i don't know ah yes what costs nothing in this day and age of financial insecurity and rising costs, it costs you nothing bar a little bit of your time to go to iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, all the places where you can rate stuff. If you rate these five stars and leave a line or two of review, uh, like and subscribe and do all of that stuff, it really helps to polish my algorithms. And if my algorithms, algorithms are gleaming, they sparkle in the vast darkness of cyberspace and uh, uh, attract people to them like moths to the cyber flame and that means more people listen to these and that justifies all of this and uh, but yes i've i haven't i haven't had uh, uh, an additional rating or review for a while now so if it's something you've been thinking of and haven't done i'd be really grateful if you could whack those five stars and just say a couple of lines of something nice uh, to give people an idea of what these are and it, it really does help. Uh, it's it's kind of what it's kind of what these things need. So please do that, and thank you very much. Yeah, follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydock. These podcasts have their own feed at Haydock Podcasts. I've got a Facebook page, Toby Haydock, you know, comedian, um, which has all my professional stuff on it. You know, any any work. Uh, you know, plugs, pointers, etc. Product, as it were, you know, clips and bits of bobs. I'm trying to get better at it. I'm also trying to improve my Instagram, which is at toby.haydoak, all small case. I mean, you'll find me. It's a, That's the, one of the advantages of having an unusual name. Uh, and I'm putting clips of my comedy shows up there. And I've, I've learned to edit and everything. I'm quite proud of the little videos I've done of my comedy club, Excess Malarkey. I do a, a trailer and then I do a last night in 60 seconds. 60 seconds, that's uh, all you have to watch. And I've, I've looked at the algorithms and often people... Most people don't stay beyond the first 15, so uh, that'd be nice if you could watch them and, and do the whole minute. I mean, who says that concentration spans are failing? But <laughs> and we've got loads of great comics that have been playing my comedy club recently uh, because that's my sort of day job, really, is to, to be a stand-up comic. So come see one of my shows. Excess Malarkey is my regular comedy club in Manchester on a Tuesday night. Uh, I'm just, as I recall this, about to start a new monthly one as well uh, called Testing Testing, which is where established acts try out new material. All of that stuff will be all over my socials. So if you could check those out, I would be very, very grateful because we largely exist on cyberspace. Now, it's going to get to the point where I'm a bit like Omega, where um, you'll knock on my door and I'll be nothing. But, but my, I will have no physical form by my Internet handles. But um, that's frankly, it's probably for the best. I've seen my waistline. Uh, my increasing waistline and my receding hairline, and none of it's a particularly pretty sight. So yes, uh, as I record this, yesterday uh, it was announced that Bonnie Langford is returning to Doctor Who, and I, I mean, I touched upon it in the podcast, but isn't that a lesson to us all, because I was furious about her casting when she joined i was furious about mel as time went on and i watched that stuff back i went she's actually she's really good she settled with some you know she settled with some 
tough call. She has to do a lot of screaming and all of that, but she's she's great. She's such a game performer. And then of course, she she goes from being you know, it's funny, isn't it, how the you know the the, the tabloids and the sort of national consciousness create an image of something and. What resilience she must have had to have emerged from from all that and be the lovely person that she is. I've had the pleasure of working with her and uh, interviewing her on stage, and she's a true proper pro. She's a bloody you know hard worker and a and a and a grafter and extremely talented. She can sing, she can dance, she can act, she can do it all, and that's probably you know why we were encouraged to think badly of her because fancy being good at things, fancy being hard working, fancy fancy being industrious. And of course, she's, you know, she's endured the slings and arrows of this entertainment industry and become a national treasure. And it was when I saw the thing and it was like, Mel, Mel Bonnie Langford is returning to Doctor Who. I went, oh, that's amazing. And I really had to check myself and go, yeah, so you can have a word with your old self. And well, and, you know, acknowledge it to your new self. And I do think this is this is very important, isn't it? Um, you know, some of your firmly held beliefs. Uh, turn out to be hogwash, uh, which is a tale for us all. So isn't isn't that a mu- isn't that a wonderful sort of alchemy that uh, th- that somebody whose initial casting was re- it, and it was it wasn't just me, you know. It was it was it was met with you know howls of kind of oh this is the you know this is the last straw, um, and maybe we're all better as a better as a nation when we appreciate a when we appreciate a talent. Uh, and, and what a credit to her that is as well. Uh, so how exciting. Bonnie Lackford is returning to Doctor Who and it's a brilliant thing. Ah, I, Yeah, it feels good to be a Doctor Who fan. It really does. We put up with a lot. We're our own worst enemy. But uh, right now, I'm, yeah, I'm feeling pretty damn good. I hope you are too.